Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're completing our series on the book of Revelation, Volume 1, The Triumph of the Lamb today, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 5, 8 to 14, as we begin now. Human history is replete with battles that have turned the tide of history. When the Greeks turned back the Persians, the power of the world shifted from the Middle East to Europe. Or when the Roman victory over the city of Carthage happened, it set the stage for the amazing growth of the Roman Empire. The Battle of Tours in 732 halted Muslim expansion into Europe. The defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 set the stage for the expansion of England's empire and gave the English language a key place in the world. The defeat of the Nazis in the last century marked the end of fascist tyranny and it opened the door for the return of Israel to her homeland. See, it is possible to view all of history from the vantage of turning points in major battles. But all the battles that have ever been fought have paled in comparison to what is up till now the greatest battle ever fought in history. I'm referring to Christ's victory at the cross of Calvary. This battle has rescued untold millions from Satan's empire of darkness, and it's freed them to be sons and daughters of God. This battle, followed by that victory, is the greatest victory in the history of the world. The next great battle that will be fought will be fought when a rider appears on a white horse, and as Revelation declares, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Following him will be the armies of heaven, and in the end, he will strike down the nations. The book of Revelation presents us with a panorama, viewing time between Christ's first great victory on the cross to the last victory when he returns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth. In between, from the first great victory to the second, there's also a great spiritual warfare. But unlike most wars in history, this war is never in doubt. The one who is seated on the throne rules from a position of power and might and glory, unlike all the kingdoms of this earth, and his Christ is presented as the Son of Man, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, his voice like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, even as these are the great spiritual realities, at the same time, the church on earth is engaged in a pronounced spiritual struggle. To some, like the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, even though their struggle involved martyrdom, they've been faithful until death and are promised the crown of life. To others, like the church of Ephesus, even while they've defended well the scourge of false teaching, they've lost their first love. To the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira, the struggle with the sexual perversity in their culture has begun to impact their churches, and they must hold fast in the day of trial. And to the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea, in an effort to be accepted by this world, they've given up on an aggressive mission of evangelism. They've got to take their stands for Christ in a hostile world. See, the great warfare in the heavenly realm is found in the experience of the church as she seeks to be faithful in battle until the battle is fought. God has never stopped being on his throne. And in his hand, he holds a scroll sealed with seven seals. Once those seals are opened and the scroll is opened, the great and last battle is engaged and history will come to its climax and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so as we come to Revelation 5, the word goes out. 
Who's worthy to take the book from the hand of the Father, break its seals and open the book, and the answer rings out, Only one is worthy, the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb that was slaughtered. And with that, the Son of God approaches his Father. He crosses the crystal sea and and takes the scroll from the hands of him who is seated on the throne. And with that, the hosts of heaven fall down before the slaughtered Lamb, and they worship. As Revelation 5 ends, we encounter three hymns of worship in praise of the triumph of the Lamb. Now, please notice that the praise here is for his triumph on the cross, the triumph that made him worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. By the end of Revelation, the worship will be of the Lamb who comes again and makes all things right. But the mere act of taking the scroll from the Father's hand results in worship of the Lamb. Indeed, Revelation 5 introduces us to the first three hymns of praise to the Lamb. The first hymn of praise is sung by the company of the 28, that is, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The second hymn expands that company to myriads of God's holy angels, all gathered and overwhelmed with the song of the 28, adding their own voices in praise. And with that, the third hymn is now joined with every creature in heaven and on earth. And with that, we're left with a question. Just how great is Jesus? But before we answer, let's read our text, Revelation 5, 8 to 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You know, today as we end the first section of Revelation, I want to in some detail look at the three songs of worship. The first is the longest of the three, and it's sung by the 28, the 24 elders and the four living creatures that are before the throne of God. Witnessing that Christ alone is worthy to take the scroll, our passage says that they sang a new song. Now, I understand that to mean that when Christ died on the cross, a new occasion for worship was introduced in heaven. See, I can only imagine the contrast. See, on the one hand is the scene on earth. The disciples have fled. Only the women and John look on. The Jewish religious leaders have mocked the impotence of Jesus hanging on a cross. The Romans have done their worst, torturing him with such vigor until he breathed his last and died. And with that, the crumpled body of Jesus is lifted from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and hastily put into his tomb. The day has been one of savage butchery. The stench of death is still in the air, and the streaks of blood and bits of flesh that trailed through the streets of Jerusalem and still clung to the cross probably attracted flies and repelled men. But in heaven... A wave of astonished wonder swept through the highest rank of the angelic host, and with an explosion of joyous rapture, 
they recognized that they were looking upon not only the greatest victory in history, but the most God-glorifying act that had ever been accomplished. On this moment, all history turned. The Song of the 28 is a new song, the kind of a song that heaven had never heard before. It begins with a simple line, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Now, for the first time is the assurance that nothing can now delay the conquering lamb from executing the plan of the Father and bringing the day of the Lord to fruition. To say that he's worthy does recognize that the Son deserves the same worship as the Father. But to say that he is worthy is a celebration of the great victory on the cross. You were slain, they sing, and in being slain, you ransomed people for God. You know, that word ransom is the picture of a purchase. Now, in our day, we'll typically think of a situation in which kidnappers demand a payment before they will release their victim. And and really, that's essentially the idea. But in the ancient world, the word ransom was also used when setting a slave free. It would be a, a price that would be paid. And once it had been paid, the slave was no longer a slave. But to whom is the ransom paid? You know, some have erroneously argued that it is a price that had to be paid to Satan. The idea behind that is that Satan had deceived the human race, and now he holds them in captivity, and Christ's death is the ransom that had to be paid to him. Let me say something. That idea is clearly an unbiblical idea. If you want an image... Think of Satan holding his captives, and in this case, God is not paying Satan a ransom, but rather he's breaking into Satan's fortress and utterly defeating him, and he's taking his captives away from him. No ransom is paid to Satan. What happens, rather, is Satan's utter defeat. Well, if that's the case, to whom is the ransom being paid? And the answer is, it's being paid to the Father. We're going to talk a whole awful lot more about that when we come back. The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in the book of Revelation, is Dr. Neufeld's most recent series. This four-volume series will be heard in its entirety over the next number of months. But each time we broadcast a new volume, we want to offer it to you at a very special price. Volume 1 includes an in-depth look at Revelation chapter 1 to 5, including a study of the seven churches, and all 15 messages are yours on CD for only $10, and it includes shipping. So order The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 1, today for your personal study or as a great addition to your church library. And remember, this series and all of our ministry programs are available as a result of the gracious gifts of our listeners. So order Volume 1, The Triumph of the Lamb, today for only $10, or make a gift to support this ministry by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. If there was a ransom that needed to be paid for our sins, it was not paid to Satan. God doesn't owe Satan anything, least of all the death of Jesus. Nor is this, as some assert, some legal right that Satan had over his captives in which God can't legally take sinners away from him without satisfying some just reason why Satan no longer has the right to the souls of human beings. I mean, all of that, I think, is sheer fantasy. 
The earth is the Lord's and all who dwell in it. God, the creator, has the legal right to everything in his creation, and he can do with and dispose of everything and everyone as he and his righteousness sees fit. And so, again, who was the ransom paid to? Listen to Paul's words found in 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, no mention of Satan here, only a mention of God the Father. The only other place where we find the word is in 1 Peter 1, verse 18, where Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And so, nowhere in the Bible is there any mention of a ransom paid to Satan. Now, I have said the ransom price that the blood of Jesus pays is a price that's paid to the Father. And the reason I say that is because the Father's righteous anger for the sins of people had to be satisfied. A ransom did need to be paid. At any rate, when the 28 in heaven sing the new song, which includes a ransom, we have to assume that the price not only was paid to God, but according to Revelation 5 verse 9, it was paid for God. See, the idea, I think, here is that God does not begrudgingly withhold his wrath from sinners, but rather he's glorified and honored by his son's ransom. He rejoices in the cross. The Father highly esteems the cross of Christ. And then having sung of the ransom, the 28 sing the effect of the ransom. Men and women have been purchased for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We've already noticed how often numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation. The number four often stands for the entire earth. And so we might think about the biblical reference to the four corners of the earth. It's a symbolic representation of the entire earth. And so mentioning four categories, tribe, language, people, nation, is to give the impression of people from all the earth. For the first time now, the saving work of God goes far beyond Israel and includes men and women from every people group of all the earth. And notice the Song of the 28 concludes with what Jesus did for the ransomed. He did two things. He made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and he made them to reign on the earth. Now, the first idea that they're a priesthood means that they always have immediate access before God. See, already we now saw how the elders are holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints as they arise before God. But a kingdom of priests who rule on the earth, well, that's the fulfillment of why God has made the human race in the first place. Adam, you'll remember, was told to have dominion over the earth to subdue it. And so as an image bearer of God, he was to rule God's creation on God's behalf. Well, we know that sin ruined that plan, but where Adam was defeated, Christ has succeeded. And so the first song in heaven, when Jesus takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, is the song that celebrates his slaughter, his cross, on which he had already won the greatest victory in history. He's purchased an elect from all nations for God, and they inherited rulership of the earth. And since this song is new, that is, until the death of Christ, this song had never been sung. What the 28 sing has ramifications. The rest of the angelic host hear of it, and they join in. You know, the question that's often asked is, well, just how many angels are there? Well, we know that the angels are created beings. We also know that they're highly intelligent. 
We know that they have spiritual bodies rather than like ours physical bodies. We know that God has given them numerous titles like holy ones and spirits and watchers, principalities, and so on. We know that they have rank and that they have an order of command. For instance, in Jude 9, he calls Michael the archangel, and in Daniel 10, verse 13, he is called the chief of the angels. We also know that unlike God, they can only be in one place at one time. But how many of them are there? Now, let me draw your attention to three Bible texts outside of the one in Revelation 5. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 mentions ten thousands of holy ones. Psalm 68, verse 17 says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. And Hebrews 12, 22 mentions innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, we compare that with Revelation 5.11, which mentions myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, how many is that? The word myriad can mean 10,000. So, if that's how we're supposed to interpret it, that would mean 10,000 of 10,000, which, of course, is an incredibly large group. But the word myriad can mean a number too great to be numbered. So we need to imagine millions upon millions of angels or a vast horde of angels expansive in number. The word of the song of the 28 has reached them. The news of the slaughtered lambs, great victory, news that the victory was so great that he is now being found worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the one who held it and that he is preparing to break its seals. Well, that news is now echoing through the angelic realms and all of them approach the throne, John says, and they said in a loud voice. You know, imagine millions, masses of angels all shouting as loud as they can. It's a roar that echoes through the creation. You know, when I read Revelation 5, verse 12, and I can almost hear the song that's being sung in Handel's Messiah, and if you know the song, you can almost hear the words, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven words. Now, if you're tracking with me, the number seven comes up. Well, it's everywhere. It is fullness. It's completion. Nothing further can be added. The accolades that the millions of angels shout roar from them. It's a roar of shouts that proclaim that nothing greater can be said about the Lamb than that he was slain. Look at it another way. The word power is often used of a king. But this king not only has power, he has perfect power. You know, we often hear that in worldly affairs that power corrupts. But not this power. It's the perfect use of power, and so it goes. And with a crashing roar of the entire band of angels shouting praise, it would seem that all creation is listening. Verse 13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea. So how do we understand that? See, I don't know that we can say with absolute certainty, but we do know that there are echoes of this kind of language in the Bible. For one, we know that all the earth was created for the glory of God. And second, we also know that in Romans 8, verse 19, that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul then goes on to say that the creation is in bondage at this moment. It's groaning. It's it's awaiting its redemption. But the news that the slaughtered lamb has taken the scroll is the awakening of hope in the created order. Things may be futile today, but now comes the assurance that the bondage of decay that now makes up the creation is going to end soon. And it is as if it were all of creation awakening to the joyous hope that the long futility of a fallen world is coming to an end. 
And with these images of the 28 in worship, followed by the host of heaven, followed by the created order, we're left with the question, just how great is Jesus? I mean, how great is he really? You know, Luke 19 tells of Jesus and his triumphal ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You know, the crowds are stilled and, and they begin to shout, and, and this indeed is the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees wanted Jesus to quiet the crowd. You know, they're afraid that what's happening now might trigger a Roman response, to which Jesus answered, it's recorded in Luke 19, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Indeed, by the end of Revelation 5, the very stones are crying out. And therefore, I ask again, how great is Jesus? And the answer is, there is no greater thing in heaven or on earth than Jesus. You'll never encounter anything as impressive as honorable, as altogether beautiful, as mind and heart engaging, as lovely and as powerful, as morally upright, as wise, as honorable, as altogether worthy of our highest accolades, or as great as Jesus. He is before and he is over all things. He is worthy of all your worship. If you were to lose everything that you had and in the process were to gain Jesus, you would be the richest person on earth. Worthy is the Lamb who has triumphed. John, what a triumphant message. What an incredible message of worshiping the King of Kings. How great is our Jesus. I wonder, though, do we suffer as God's people or even in the church today with an underwhelming image of Christ? Does that become evident in how we worship him? Yeah, I mean, that is the greatest spiritual warfare that the church is engaged in. If we do not capture a vision of the real Jesus, we will have nothing but problems. But every problem that we have is solved when we capture this, this image of, of the glory of Christ. And, and let me say that's not only true of the church, it's true of every single individual life. I mean, you know, so many of us are distracted. We are, we are bored with our own faith. You know, we are interested in everything from, you know, sports to pornography to mindless pursuits to, I mean, on and on go the list of things that distract us and take our passion off of Christ. And, and, and I could only say that all of this is because we have never gazed at the glory of the one who's seated on the throne. I mean, you know, to think about, you know, the, the 28 and then all the angelic realm and then all of creation itself simply stirred. And I would ask of the Lord, stir our hearts in the same way. Thanks for your message today, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. After attending Dr. Neufeld's Bible teaching conference in India, pastors wrote saying, I've decided to study God's Word diligently and apply it to my personal life. And I've realized that I desperately need to spend more time in studying God's Word. Events in Pune and Hyderabad were filled to capacity as Dr. Neufeld shared his passion for and keys to excellence in Bible teaching. So much prayer, attention to detail took place by both the India and Canadian ministries of Back to the Bible. But it was the role of international partners across Canada that made it possible. Bless you. God was working through your commitment. 
Now we begin to plan for future conferences and the expansion of ministry opportunities across India. So please continue to pray and consider how you might continue to support the cost of our international ministry efforts. For more information or to send a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.